Good morning. Thanks, Jake, for uh, sharing that. It, I was thinking as I was watching it, uh, when I came here 21 years ago and would prep a sermon, I used to have my desk just covered in these books that I had bought and 15 books open and chasing words down. And, and now you can do it all sitting at your computer, unless you're on a tech fast this week and don't want to do that. But, but it's amazing what you can actually do with just the tools that are available online. It's, uh, now I prep my sermon with my laptop in front of me and can access even more tools than before. But We're entering into the season of Lent. I uh, started this past Wednesday on Ash Wednesday. Lent started uh, hundreds of years ago in the church as this uh, practice where people that were preparing to be baptized on Resurrection Sunday would take a 40-day period of reflection and repentance as they prepared to be baptized. Well, as the years went on, it got adopted by a larger and larger number of people uh, and developed into this season of reflection and repentance leading up to Resurrection Sunday. And it's a good practice. It's one that I believe in because we don't often do that in our society. We have a hard time with hard truths, especially when they're about ourselves. We avoid them. We get distracted. We like to look at other people's issues and not our own. And so Lent is this season where we actually practice humbling ourselves before God and letting him guide us through our own hearts. And, and in the lectionary, you'll see where this past week we've been reading the book of Lamentations. We'll, we'll move into some later portions of Jeremiah. Uh, we don't really know who wrote Lamentations, but most people think it was Jeremiah. Um, we just don't know for sure. But as you grasp the heart of this book, you have to realize that Lamentations really is, it's just five heavy poems. Uh, it's, it's an acquired taste. I had someone tell me just yesterday, what are you doing with this book? I'm not enjoying Lamentations. It's not something that you typically pick up and just enjoy right off the bat. It's five different poetic takes on what it's like to live after Jerusalem has fallen to the Babylonians. It's the end of the empire. It's the end of the hopes and dreams of the Jews. They lay in ashes and rubble. And, and Lamentations actually chronicles the words that come out of that time of tragedy and trauma. The whole book has a context of great loss. See, the story is spelled out in 2 Corinthians uh, 20, or 2 Kings, excuse me, 2 Kings 24 and 25, this fall of Israel, fall of Jerusalem. And I don't think we can really grasp that. I was thinking this week about the fall of Canada. What if Canada fell? What if another country came in and and took all our systems of government, all our traditions, all our symbols away? What if we were carted off to another place, lost our freedoms? (laughs) I was thinking about that and I was thinking, you know what, we're so irritated by the limitations imposed by COVID. Can you imagine if our country actually ceased to be, if our freedoms were gone? And it's even worse for the Jews because their, their city of Jerusalem was linked to their faith. The fact that that Jerusalem was there and the temple was there was a testimony to the God that they believed in. And all that is gone. Right? I want you to think about the time in your life when you felt like everything that you had counted on was pulled out from underneath you. And that's the context for these five poems from a Jewish standpoint. And it's a very unstable place. Who knows what tomorrow will bring? And you can see as you look at the poems, this is just kind of a little background, that that the writer is attempting to bring structure to the chaos. When we're in a painful time, 
We often like to find something that we can control. When we feel like life's out of control, we focus in on something that we can. I remember after my dad passed away, I went down and stayed with my mom for a couple weeks, and I just threw myself into to all the details about the estate and, and getting all the documents done and trying to take care of my mom so she didn't have to deal. With, and it was very therapeutic for me because it was something, I could, it was a task I could do because I had lost my dad. I remember that, the joy that I found just in helping and actually doing something concrete. And, and uh, Jake showed that the Bible Hub website and the Holman Christian Standard Bible, if you look at the formatting, there's a picture of chapter one. Uh, and if you look at the formatting of the text, you got that picture, Glenn? Is that, there you go. You can see that there's these little words above the verses. Aleph, Bet, if you kept going, Gimel, Dalit. What the poet has done in the first four chapters is he's written an acrostic poem with the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. The first verse starts with Aleph. The second verse starts with Bet, and it goes all the way through the 22 letters of the, the alphabet, of the Hebrew alphabet. The first four do, but the fifth one, the fifth one is just a jumble of, it's still got the same number of, of stanzas, 22 stanzas, same as the letters of the alphabet, but they're all disordered. And it's almost like he's trying to hold it together. And by the time he gets to the end, he realizes there's nothing that can be done to hold this suffering in some kind of cohesive whole. But like Jewish literature, it doesn't build to the end. You remember lots of times that in Jewish literature, the truth or the hope is buried in the middle. Chapter three is different. It's still got the 22 stanzas, one for each uh, letter of the alphabet. But you can see from this picture of chapter three that, that it's three verses per letter of the alphabet. It's, it's bigger. Instead of 22 verses in your text, there's 66 verses in chapter three, drawing attention to this middle one. And, and I'm asked Betty Corbett to read the first 40 verses of chapter three. We'll, we'll listen to the text and then we'll come back at it. Lamentations three. I am the one who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He has walled me in so I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has barred my way with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. Like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in hiding, he drags me from the path and mangles me and leaves me without help. He drew his bow and made me the target of his arrows. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughingstock of all my people. They mocked me in song all day long. He has filled me with bitter herbs and sated me with gall. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. 
Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those who hope in him, to the one who seeks him. It's good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to one who would strike him, and let him be filled with disgrace. For men are not cast off forever by the Lord. Though, the, though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love, for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to the children of men. To crush underfoot all prisoners in the land, to, to deny a man in his rights before the Most High, to deprive a man of justice, would not the Lord see such things? Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamity and good come? Why should any living man complain when punished for his sin? Let us examine our ways and test them, and let us return to the Lord. Amen. So this middle poem in the book is written from the perspective of someone who's endured this fall of the city, this destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. You can almost see him walking through the streets and everything. You know, you've seen these war-torn countries where buildings are destroyed, where things are burned out. And he's walking through there and he describes himself as the person who has seen affliction. He suffered through the event. He's watched it happen. And, and as he speaks, we hear this raw emotion of the pain and the difficulty that he's gone through. And we also see later on in this poem what keeps him grounded. But the first 18 verses are pretty harsh. And he details from his perspective the role that God has played in this. It's quite the statement of accusations, right? In 18 verses, there are 18 times where he says, he has done something, referring to God. In verse 3, the hand of God has struck me. That's, he's pulling language from the Old Testament. Job 19.21 says the same thing. In verses 4 to 6, he talks about his health has been just destroyed. And pulls verses from Psalm 38 and Psalm 42. In verses 7 to 9, he talks about being trapped or being walled in, being contained. And he draws language from Psalm 88. In verses 10 to 13, he talks about being a target of the arrows of God. Something Job said in Job 6, Job 7, and Job 16. See, he's using words from all throughout the Old Testament to give voice to his own feelings and his own frustrations. And it's a harsh accusation. One that stands, he says, God is like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in hiding. He dragged me from the path and he mangled me and left me without help. You know, we step back from this text and our first reaction is, well, it's their own fault. They turned away from God. Their whole, the whole history of Israel is them turning away from God. They sought their own way. But what I want you to see is in this moment right here, this poet is not trying to, to figure it all out. He's just saying what he feels. And in these situations, 
When people are so accusatory toward God, we often jump to defend God. It's not his fault. It's not God's fault. It's their fault. They're reaping the results of their rebellion. They deserve this. But let me, let me say three quick things. The first one is this. If this is Jeremiah, Jeremiah has been faithful through the whole thing from what we can see. He's had his struggles, but he's been faithful. He's been the mouthpiece of God to the people, right? And, 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 and the reality is sometimes we can be really callous when it comes to the suffering of people because we feel like they deserve it. But the reality is that when people sin, innocent people suffer right alongside them. And we need to be careful being so callous and just discounting these feelings because sometimes there are people that are suffering who have been faithful. And a second thing I would say is that Jewish thinking, and we, we, we tend to kind of do a mental two-step on this, but the Jewish understanding was that the Lord, Yahweh, was, was ruling the universe. And so even if God didn't specifically do these things, God allowed these things to happen. He could have stopped it, but he didn't. And, you know, we, we, we kind of avoid that tension in our own lives, but it's a reality of the text. The writer's saying God allowed, he, this stuff happened. The third thing I would say really quickly is God doesn't seem to feel the need to justify this. He doesn't need to step up and say, but it really wasn't me. It was you guys messing up, right? He could have edited this book. I think he wrote the whole thing. So he could have edited this part out and said, that doesn't really reflect very well on me and my character but he left it there. The question is, why? Why is it there? And I think it's because often it's honesty that paves the way for us to get to where we need to be. In verse 19 and 20, there's this reflective moment. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. And this reflective moment after all this honest conversation, leads the writer back to the unchangeable nature of God. And really, in this book, this section is the only positive, hopeful section that I can find in the book. These words, are, we love them. When they've inspired songs, we sang a couple of them today. And Jake showed there's good reason to think that this author, as he's writing, is reflecting back on Exodus 34, based on the wording that he's chosen. And verse 21 is, is this, he says, this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. I'm remembering something about my past. I've been honest about it. I'm remembering and it opens this doorway to see who God really is. And he highlights these elements of God's nature. The Lord's great love. He says, it's God loves us or we would be gone. We'd be consumed. His compassions are new. They never fail. They're new every morning. Great is his faithfulness and his goodness. It, the Lord is good. That's part of his essential nature. And, and notice too, his hope is not in Jerusalem being rebuilt. His hope is not in his suffering ending. It says in verse 24, I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my portion. His, his hope is not the improvement of his circumstance. What, it, what he has left is God alone. God's what he's holding on to. And this reflection on the character, he's been honest, and then he's thought about the character of God, and then he moves on uh, to what he's gained, an understanding of the process. In verse 25, he says, the Lord is good. But then in verse 26, he says, it is good to wait. In verse 27, it is good to bear the yoke. 
even in what has happened in these first 18 verses, he's realized there's something good there. God is doing something in him. And he goes on in verse 28 to 30. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to the one who would strike him, and let him be filled, filled with disgrace. Now, why is that good? Why is he saying that, that this kind of experience has been good? Once again, back to the nature of God, he continues. He says that, you know, this, God's not going to let this continue forever. Verse 31, no one is cast off by the Lord forever, though he brings grief he will show compassion, so great is his unfailing love. He does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. He goes on to talk about the fact that God is allowing all of this to happen as a, for a purpose. There's something good about this difficulty and this struggle. And he ends with verse 38 and 39. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Why should the living complain when punished for their sins? He goes back to this idea that God is the one ruling the universe and there's something about His character that helps us through this whole struggle and the response is that we need to examine and return. Verse 40. Let us examine our ways and test them and let us return to the Lord. And that, my friends, that's the that verse is the purpose of Lent, to take time to refocus, to examine, to repent, and to return, to look at our lives, to look at the struggle and the difficulty, to be honest about it, to reflect on the nature and the character of God, and to return back to what He's called us to. Every year, except for this past year when I haven't been coaching basketball, there's a practice or two practices where I take my phone in and while the girls are shooting hoops, I just kind of walk around and I film them shooting the basketball. Because you know what? I've taught them how to shoot the basketball. They know how to put their feet. They know how to hold up. They know how to, to extend their arm and flick their wrist through. They know all that. And if you ask them, are you doing that? They say, yes, I'm doing that every time. That's how you shoot the ball. They know that until I video them and let them see themselves do something like this or do something like that. They're, they're doing these crazy things and they don't even realize it. And what that video does is it says you're not doing what you think you're doing. It's a moment to pause and reflect on what your body is actually doing. And that's what Lent is. It's a moment for us to stop, to listen, and be open. We need to do that on a regular basis because we human beings have a tremendous capacity for self-deception. We can fool ourselves so easily. It's one of the reasons we need a community around us. It's another reason I think that we need every year for 40 days to come back to the season of Lent and be honest about what we actually feel and see and think. How many of you have needed to do something, but you wait until the last minute to actually do it? In our bathroom, we have a light fixture with three light bulbs above the sink. And, and I will change the light bulbs when the last one goes, right? It's dark and it's frustrating, but I get lazy and I don't want to change the light bulbs until the third, all three are gone. I wait till the very end. Or... How many of you have had an issue with your car, but you just wait until it, you know, and then you're starting to get nervous. You, you put it off or sometimes in relationships, we don't want to talk about this issue. We put it off until we can't avoid it anymore. <laughs> One of the things I counsel couples in premarital counseling is to identify the number of their debt. How much debt do you actually have? So many times we don't even know how much money we owe because we don't want to know. We want to put it off. 
right? We have this tremendous capacity to put things off that are important, to deceive ourselves. And Lent says, examine your ways, test them, make changes, return. That's why I want to spend the rest of the time talking about practicing lament during Lent. It's a skill. Lamenting is a skill that we don't often develop. Half, almost half the psalms in the Jewish prayer book are psalms of lament. It's this act of honestly expressing what we feel and see and think to God, putting it all out there. And almost half of the 150 psalms, most people say around 70 psalms, are lament psalms or have aspects of lament in them. Paul recommends this type of honesty in relationship to God in Philippians 4. He says, don't be anxious about anything but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So as we wrap up, I'll give you three guidelines that I see from this text that help us through Lent. First, I would encourage you to do this. Pray prayers that are honest. The first 18 verses of the text are exactly how the writer feels. He's honest. He doesn't pull any punches. And you know what? We like honesty, unless it's about us. We, we, there's something refreshing about honesty. I came across, and kids, kids can be brutally honest. I came across this video clip with Steve Harvey. We'll just watch it to see kids being honest. The end of the school year is quickly approaching, and kids across the country are leaving uh, their teachers' notes, you know, as they prepare to go home for summer vacation. Uh, I got my hands on some of these notes that some of the kids wrote. And one thing is clear, uh, kids, are, kids are honest. <laughs> okay, check out this one. Miss Nunn, you were a good teacher this year, but not my favorite ever, <laughs> not even close. <laughs> Bye, Brian. Here's one. Miss Stevens, I'm sorry your cat died, but at least you won't smell as dirty anymore. <laughs> Little Michael. Little something for you for your summer break. Check this out. Miss Mandy, you can move my seat anywhere, and I will still talk a lot. I just will. Now, you think about that this summer. <laughs> Stacy. I don't care where you move me, I'm talking. <laughs> All right, here's one right here. I like you, Miss Klein. If I had to choose between you being killed or me not getting to eat dessert, I'd choose for you not to be killed. <laughs> Patrick. Y'all need to take this boy to video games. I'm telling you right now, it's too much killing him. And finally, this was a good one. Mr. Michaels, you made second grade fun. I know you will enjoy the bars this summer. <laughs> Love, Kristen. And then they drew a drink with an umbrella in it. We laugh because there's this refreshing thing about honesty. It makes us laugh. But being honest with ourselves is a lot more challenging, especially being honest with ourselves to God, about God, in our prayers. 
But you know, you, if, if you read the Psalms, there's a lot of honesty. Psalm 10:1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Honest to God. Psalm 44, 23. Awake, O Lord. The Hebrew is like, wake up. Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? The Psalms were completely honest. There's tons of other examples. The entire book of Habakkuk, the prophetic book, is a conversation back and forth with God. And he starts out honestly in Habakkuk 1, verse 2 and 3. He says, how long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen or cry out to you violence, but you don't save. We have to feel free to be honest with God about our feelings, our situation. There's something that's healing in that process. Because if there's no honesty, there's no relationship. Now, I've been a pastor here 21 years. I know the things I've said and the way I've led hasn't pleased everyone. And I know some people over that 21 years have left the church because of certain things I've done. And I'm, I'm sad about that. I'm brokenhearted about that. But there, there are times when I see these people in the community and it's like, hi, how's it going? And it's all rosy. And, and what makes me sadder is there's no hope for that relationship to be restored because there's not even honesty about the problem. And, you know, honesty, if you're not going to be honest, it limits the depth of relationship. Honest prayers pave the way for honest relationship. And Lent helps us to learn to do that. It helps us practice and develop our muscles of lament. And in the midst of that, while you're being honest, and what, what I think you'll find is when you are honest, it, it leads you to the same place that the writer in our text got led to, where he's holding tightly to God's character, where he reflects back to that passage from Exodus 34 on the nature of who God is. Psalm 103 does the same thing. It's my favorite psalm. I've told you that a million times. My kids make a note. That's my funeral psalm, Psalm 103, right? The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. See, the poet doesn't place his hope in changed circumstances. Remember that phrase in, in, in verse 24, the Lord is my portion. He's not saying everything's going to get better. He's saying the one thing that I have left is Yahweh, and this is who he is. His character can be trusted. That word for portion is the same word for inheritance or uh, I mean, I, I, there's not a biblical passage, but in Hebrew, if 10 guys got together and they robbed a bank and they went away and they were dividing up the, the, the plunder, the spoil, they would have used that. Where's my portion? I want my portion. And what the psalmist says after his honesty and he reflects on the character of God, he says, the Lord is my portion. This is what I have. And this is something that can never be taken away from me. See, we have to be honest in our prayers. We should be. But that honesty helps us to strip away the desires around circumstances and brings us back to what we have that will never change, God's presence with us and his character. The one thing that can never be taken away from us, the one thing that will help us withstand whatever is going on around us. 
So the goal in Lent is to be honest in your prayers with God and to cling tightly to the nature, the character of who God is, and then to let the waiting do its work. Verse 26, it is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's good to wait. (laughs) How many of us would disagree with that? Right? It never, it doesn't say it feels good to wait. It says it's good. It is good. I was reading this week, studies have been done that show the average attention span of an individual now is around eight seconds. Just to make you feel even better, the average attention span of a goldfish is nine seconds. So we, we have less attention span. And, and you know, they, they, they talk about technology in this study, how since the year 2000, we had a 12 second attention span and now it's down to eight seconds. But it goes back even further, right? The way society moves has made us impatient with waiting. You know, when, back when it was an agrarian society and everything was based on crops, you planted and you waited and you harvested and you stored and you, there was, waiting was built into the rhythm of society. And then the industrial revolution, all of a sudden we're producing things, we're making things happen. We're, we're, we're instead of waiting for the work, we go and show up and we create things. And then in, in the Google society, in less than a second, you can have two million responses to any question that you want to ask. We've forgotten how to wait. One of the reasons we're, I think a tech fast can be so important in a Linton process is it, it takes that ability to, to respond to something so quickly or to, it forces you to sit quietly. In that same study done by Microsoft in 2015, they, they asked this question, or they asked a yes or no. When, when nothing is occupying my attention, the first thing I do is reach for my phone. And 77% of those aged 18 to 24 said yes. When nothing is occupying my attention, I reach for my phone because we don't like to wait. We've, we've neglected that skill. We've forgotten how. And, and when we're forced to wait, when somebody cuts in line or somebody... Ansel and I always laugh because we, you know those people, you're driving down the road and they pass you and they pass and they pass and then you pull up by the next red light and, and you're right beside them again. We always laugh and say, well, that saved a lot of time. You know, we, we, the, the point is we don't like to wait and we get angry when we have to wait. But, but the, truly, the, the, the truth is that the things that are good, we have to wait for. We want what we want, and we want it now, but, but sometimes things can't happen like that. Like developing character and integrity is a process. It takes time. Learning a subject fully to actually grasp and understand something takes more than scrolling through the headlines on CNN or Fox on your website. To understand the issues around it, we have to wait and think and process. To develop physical skill and strength, you start small, you work your way up. Waiting is part of what we have to do, and the spiritual life is the same. If we're going to grow into the image of Christ, it doesn't happen overnight. It's a lot of learning and waiting. And like I say, it doesn't, it, it's not fun. But what waiting does is it takes us off of the throne of our life. It takes us out of the driver's seat. That's why the writer says, it is good to wait for the salvation, quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Once again, it doesn't feel good, but it is good. And I want to encourage you through this Lenten season to be honest in your prayers. 
And I want you to hold to the character of God because that's the one thing that will never be taken away. In Exodus 33, God says to Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And I want you to let the waiting do its work. It's good to wait for the salvation of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 3 has this process. As we look at Christ, it says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. In other words, as we look at him and get to see who he is, as we, we've wrestled through the honesty and we turn to the character of God, it says, Then we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. But let the waiting do its work. Let that process play out. Let the honesty lead you to the character of God and then wait for God to develop that in you. It's not our responsibility to make everything work. It's not your responsibility to fix everything. It's not your responsibility even to figure it all out. But waiting on the salvation of the Lord will reshape you. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion by tomorrow afternoon. That's not what it says. Until the day of Christ Jesus. This, this work that God is doing in us, it starts with ruthless honesty. Because honesty opens the doorway of true relationship. And it continues from that honesty to trusting in the character of God and then requires waiting for God to finish what he started in you. Let's pray. God, as we enter Lent, uh, it's a different kind of season for us. We don't like to think about the dark side or the, the heavy truths or the things that we struggle with. And yet we just want to say right up front, it's, it's because of your great love that we are not consumed. The very fact that, that your faithfulness and your mercy is always there makes it safe for us to walk through these dark corners of our lives and to be honest with you about what we feel and what we think. And we ask that as we're honest with you that you would redirect us again to your character, to your nature, and help us to trust in you. And God, help us to wait Help us to be patient uh, with you, patient with ourselves as we walk through this process, patient with, with what you're shaping in us. Help us to rest in the fact that you are transforming us into the image of your Son. In these times of quiet and, and instability, when we feel like, like things aren't, aren't going the way we think they should or we, we can't turn to the things we always turn to for comfort, I just pray you would use those times to open our heart to what you would speak and say to us. Help us to rest in your love, your goodness, your faithfulness, and your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as you're honest this week, you can be honest about your questions for God, but I want you to also be honest about yourself. I want you to realize things that are in your own life that you're afraid to say even about your own self, to say them to God, to confess, to be open, to, re to realize these are areas that you, you're not happy about. You'd rather not acknowledge them. You'd, you'd rather walk away or distract yourself or, or look at somebody else. But just to be brutally honest about what is in your own life. It could be your weakness. It could be your sin. It could be your whatever. Be honest with God about it. And then come back to this passage.
Starting in verse 21, yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope because of the Lord's great love, I am not consumed because his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. That's my prayer for you this week. Amen.